right, let's continue to worship through the study of God's word that he's given to us. If you want to turn to that passage, uh, starting in Luke chapter 12, verse 49, 1249, it's where uh, we'll, we'll make our way through a good chunk of verses here. While you're doing that, I want to invite you to kind of think with me about uh, one of the, the, if not or one of the, if not the, cardinal sins uh, in our contemporary context, contemporary culture, and that is the sin of being judgmental. If, you've, uh, if you're paying attention, you might notice that this is, this is one of the, the worst things you can do or be in our current context, isn't it? We, we like to hedge a lot um, when we're talking about uh, uh, any kind of critique or criticism of somebody else. You know, I'm not judging, but, and then we proceed to judge. Uh, it's, it's kind of like the non-Southern version of, uh, of bless their heart or something like that. You know, bless their heart, and then you just insult somebody, you know, completely un- undo them. Um, it's, it's something like that. We just, as lo- we might like to judge, we actually do make judgments. Uh, we just don't want to be perceived as being judgmental of, of, of making, you know, who, who do you think you are to kind of pronounce judgment on somebody else? And we, we relate to one another. And there's something good about this, right? The, Jesus tells us to be careful as we execute or as we, as we uh, uh, employ any kind of judgment or critique of anybody else with the, the measure that we judge, we will be judged with. And so there's a, there's a good caution to make sure that we're not going around just, you know, with our kind of moral pistols, just uh, pinging anybody for their, for their failures. Or we just, as though they're accountable to us, uh, we have to be careful not to, not to stand uh, with a judgmental attitude or heart towards others because it's really hard to, it's hard to love somebody else when your primary posture towards them is, is one of judgmentalism. So there's some good things about the caution towards being judgmental. Uh, there's also some things that we need to uh, maybe be careful of. If we, if we go so far into not being judgmental, we can begin to just say, well, there's no right and there's no wrong. Everybody's just got their own thing. Who am I to judge? That kind of thing. To where we just lose all sense of kind of uh, uh, moral uh, uh, kind of uh, right and wrong, uh, calling wrong right and, and right wrong, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there can be a kind of a, 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 loosening, a, a loosening up of our uh, kind of bearings when it comes to morality and truth and that kind of thing. Well, Jesus is not in this passage particularly concerned with not seeming judgmental. Uh, this is a passage in which Jesus, really the whole text here, Jesus is basically saying, I am coming to judge. Jesus is not saying, well, I'm not judging. He's actually starting off. To be clear, I am absolutely judging right now. Um, Which for you and I, we're kind of like, oh, who's this guy think he is? And Jesus is like, great question. Let me tell you, okay? Uh, That is the right next question when Jesus sit here and says, I am coming to judge. So let me just give you the main idea, and then I want to walk through this text. Uh, This text goes in a lot of different directions, um, but I, I think there's a through line of sorts under this heading. The first couple verses really give us the heading that everything else falls under. So the main idea I'm going to give you is that Jesus came to execute God's judgment against sin and to call sinners to repentance. Jesus came actually for the purpose of executing God's judgment against sin. And as he does that, he calls sinners to repentance. You see this, I think, in the very first two verses of our text today. Chapter 12, verse 49, he says, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that were already kindled. This image of casting fire is uh, supposed to make us think about the Old Testament story 
of maybe Sodom and Gomorrah, where God executes judgments on these wicked cities for their depravity in the form of fire raining down from heaven and kind of destroying the cities entirely. Jesus is using this imagery and he's saying, I have come to cast fire on the whole earth. He has come to execute judgment on the whole earth, to to stand in judgment and say, this is right and this is wrong. And this is really what Jesus has been saying he's doing throughout at least chapter 12, even before that a little bit. He's saying, I am actually returning. when, when When the master comes back, he is going to make judgments about his servants. And some of them he's gonna find to be faithful and he's gonna say, well done, good and faithful servant. And then others he's gonna find to be unfaithful. And there are various forms of judgment and discipline that the unfaithful servants get. And so he's just continuing on with this idea to say that he is actually coming for the express purpose of executing judgment. Now, he, he's coming now. We're going to get there in just a second. He's coming now for the purpose of judgment. But he, he also recognizes that judgment will not be kind of fully and finally accomplished until he he returns a second time. That's why he says, uh, and would that it were already kindled. He recognizes this judgment is not complete yet. It's not finished. You're not, it's okay if you look around and say, well, it doesn't look like judgment has happened. It makes sense that you live in this broken world right now and say, it really seems like judgment is not fully completed yet because it really seems like the wicked are prospering and the good are suffering. And certainly that's true in various, in various ways. The judgment that he intends to execute is not fully and finally accomplished yet. Why? Well, he builds it out. It's not just because he hasn't returned yet. It's also because he hasn't died yet. If you look in verse 50, he says, I have a bapti- baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus actually wants to connect. He's not talking about his baptism. He's not talking about going back into the Jordan River and being dunked again or anything like that. He's actually looking forward to his death. And he's saying one of the reasons that this judgment is not fully executed, the fire is not kindled yet, uh, as it were, is because he still has something he has to go through. I have a baptism. He must first go to the cross. Jesus, in these very first two verses, is presenting both the, the, the large, like these are the two principles we're going to need to hold on to that are going to carry us through the rest of the passage. And, and, and those are this. One, Jesus is absolutely the righteous judge. And then two, his qualification for being the righteous judge is that he himself has undergone judgment. It is actually the fact that Jesus himself experienced the judgment, submitted himself to the Lord's judgment, that is the reason he can stand righteously and judge all creation. This right here at the very beginning is the beauty of the gospel in this passage. Jesus does not stand far off and cast judgment. He enters into our brokenness and doesn't just say, I'm sorry about you in your plight. He enters into our plight. He enters into our judgment and he has received it for us. And it is after he undergoes judgment himself that he will then stand complete, perfected, righteous over the whole world. And he tells us, Part of my work is to stand as a judge. Jesus has been talking about this role that he's got in his return and his judgment and his divvying up the 
his followers or his servants, that kind of thing. But what's striking in the text before us is the servants simply don't get it. They are totally mistaken about what Jesus is trying to teach them about judgment this whole time. I want you to say four times, really five times in this passage, you see Jesus correcting the misunderstandings of the crowds who are following him. In verse 51, he, he says, if you, if you just want to do a little Bible study with this, you got a pencil or whatever, you can, can circle this. He says in verse 51, do you think that I've come to bring peace on the earth? And then he corrects it and says, no, that's wrong. In verse 56, he calls them hypocrites because they know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, uh, but do you not know how to interpret the present time? There was another failure. They, 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 didn't, they didn't know, uh, sorry, they thought that he brought, came to bring peace and he, they were wrong. They don't know how to interpret the times. If you look in the very first ver- next verse, 57, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? He's been teaching the crowds and he's like, you don't know, you don't judge what is right, you don't, uh, uh, you don't think correctly about Jesus' ministry. If you jump into verse th- or chapter 13, verse 2, he says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners? And then he says the same thing in verse 4, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? He is reaching into the hearts and minds of the crowds that have been following him and he's saying, you guys are misunderstanding some key teachings, some key things about this this judgment that I have come to bring. And so I want us to walk through the rest of this passage just uh, uh, following through Jesus correcting four misunderstandings that the crowds have uh, about this, this judgment that he is coming to bring. Let's just take them one at a time. The first, the first misunderstanding is that the, the crowds misunderstood Jesus' ministry and the nature, that it, uh, the nature of it. In verse, verse 51, he says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Jesus rebukes the crowds that are following him for thinking that his main purpose here is to usher in this kind of earthly kingdom, especially as it relates to Israel in relation to their Roman oppressors. They understood that the, the, the Messiah, the deliverer, was coming to, to bring in this, this reign of peace for the people of God, which would obviously require overthrowing the Roman government who was oppressing them, right? You think that I've come here to bring in an era of peace. Jesus says, you got it all wrong. I've come in to bring an era of division. Jesus' ministry was one of, of dividing, of distinguishing, of making judgments. Now, before we take that in a unhelpful directions, I think it's worth noting that he is not rejecting peace, saying that peace is a bad thing. Uh, elsewhere in scripture, we have the, the, scriptures of te- uh, the teachings of scripture that are telling us uh, that we should, as far as it, be- uh, it pertains to us, live at peace with everyone. Peace is something that is good. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. We are to be people of peace, agents of peace, etc. Peace is good in the Bible. Why is Jesus saying, I didn't come to bring peace? Not only that, but division is generally bad in the Bible. This especially apply when it comes to the New Testament church. If you read through the New Testament letters, over and over and over again, perhaps the most consistent thing that the churches are warned against is division, divisiveness, sectarianism, factions. It just simply is not appropriate for the people of God to be marked by divisions. And yet here Jesus is saying, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring division. Not for division's sake, though. 
Jesus' coming means that there will necessarily be distinctions. Jesus is saying it is actually by virtue of his baptism, of his undergoing the, the, uh, the punishment and the judgment that you deserve and that I deserve, that he is qualified to be the very focal point of all future judgment. Let me say that again because it's really important. It is actually because of what Jesus has undergone because he went to the cross to die for your sins and for my sins. He is now worthy to be the focal point of all future judgments. That's, that's what he's getting into with this image of this family. Jesus is saying, the div- I'm not here just to celebrate division. He's saying division is gonna happen because people make draw different conclusions about me. The division is there. It's not really so much as causing division as revealing the division. And it is the division along the lines of how they relate to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is him who is at the the very, is he that's at the very focal point of all future faithful divisions. Now, and Jesus wants to drive the point home and say, these divisions are gonna be revealed in the most intimate context that you can possibly imagine. That's why he goes for the family here. He's not celebrating families having infighting, okay? No one among us has a hard time imagining what family conflict looks like, okay? We can resonate with this, okay? Jesus is not saying, I'm here to break families up. What he's saying is something more important than your family is entered into the equation. And and it is so important that if you relate to this, this focal point, Jesus himself, differently than your mother or your father, your sister, your in-laws, there's going to be division. Jesus is going to the most intimate context for someone in, this, in, in the, the, the New Testament, somebody's most intimate understanding of their social cultural, and even their psychological self-understanding. Everything about who they were was connected to their family. And Jesus is saying, that submits to me. It's actually how that relates to me that is going to reveal and cause distinctions and divisions. He's not sitting here saying, I hope your family breaks up. He's saying, if following Jesus means your family rejects you, it will be worth it and it will be right. If following Jesus means that a a chasm is opened up between you and those not just closest to you, but those who give you a a sense of self-understanding, then following Jesus will be the right thing to do, the necessary thing to do, and worth it. Now, I don't wanna jump too far from the application here for us first and foremost. There might be some of you for whom following Jesus means your family rejects you. And I just want to encourage you, brother and sister, he is worth it. He will prove himself worth it. And we mourn for the fact that you have lost intimacy and relationship with family and friends maybe because you have chosen to submit your life to Jesus. But this text is not just saying he's worth it. He's saying he's coming back to reveal that judgment 
that distinction. He is coming back as a judge. He is calling. He's not just saying, see if you can be faithful. He's saying you must be faithful to him above all else. And there are going to be times when it is so hard to follow Christ in the midst of familial or social pressures. And this passage is saying Jesus is coming back to judge those who have dedicated themselves, who've submitted themselves, who've oriented their se- themselves around him and him above all other things. Maybe it's not your family. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your social or economic aspirations where following Jesus means you've got to sacrifice potentially good things. The question for us, brother and sister, is do we believe it's worth it? What is the thing for you that if Jesus says, following me means losing or giving up, fill in the blank, your heart is tempted to say, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's worth it. But I just, brother, sister, I just want to encourage you to name that. S- say what it is. Bring it to the Lord and ask him. Not, I'm not saying throw it away. I'm saying be willing to give it up if that's what following Jesus means. It might not be, it might not be social. It might not be economic. It might be not be familial. It might be internal for you. It might be a desire that you have. That doesn't have to be a bad desire. But what if following Jesus means giving it up? It might be a pursuit. It might be a longing. Jesus is saying, I have come not to bring peace, but to divide, to show those who are willing to give everything up for me and those who are not. And it's important that we recognize that this passage, that he, he, uh, this, this little uh, uh, kind of list of conflicts within a family is actually a quotation from Micah chapter 7, verse 6. It's, or it's at least an allusion to it where Micah, the prophet in the Old Testament, is actually speaking out about the judgment of God, but follow me here, on the people of God. What that means, though, is this is not just a a do the right thing or be in the right crowd over against the pagans. He's saying even those who claim to be followers of Christ, even those who claim to be the people of God, within there, there will be divisions that reveal because of, of this uh, uh, lack of dedication and lack of submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's actually saying that for God's people, you cannot presume that just because you belong to the right tribe or go to the right church or belong to the right family, that you're on the right side of this judgment. Even within those most intimate of contexts, there will be distinctions, there will be divisions that are revealed that means a lot for, I think, a lot of us, but let me just speak especially to the kids in the room. We want to praise God for your families that are bringing you to church and raising you, hopefully, to know the gospel. But I just want to say a word of warning to you. Just because you've got the right family, you cannot presume that you're on the right side of God's judgment. Just because you go to the right church, go to the right discipleship classes or whatever it is, you read all the right books, does not mean you can presume that if you've got the, the, the evangelical tattoo that that's what matters. The only thing that matters is our relationship to the one who's doing the judgment. That is what Jesus' ministry was. They misunderstood his ministry. They thought they were coming to usher and he was coming in to usher a peace. And he says, no, that's not what I'm coming for. 
The second thing they misunderstood is redemptive history. He said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and, and it happens. And then you see the south wind blowing, and you say, it's going to be hot, and it happens. I don't think this is Jesus taking a quick aside saying, weather, right? Meteorology is cool. I don't think that's what, what's going on here. He's saying, you understand what it's like to say, this already has happened. This is going to follow when you look out on the weather. It's just a very simple analogy. He's basically saying, you have the basic like, cognitive function of relating kind of at least things that a pattern, right? Normally the wind blows and then the heat comes. He said, but you haven't applied that to redemption history. You've missed what God has been doing. God has been showing you. He's been telling you what he's been doing all this time. He's told you before what he's doing, what he wants, what his purposes are, what his values, what his character is like. Now when we get to this time, why have you totally missed it? You don't know how to interpret the present time. The culmination of God's plan was standing, literally standing right in front of them. And they were unwilling and unable to make the connection. They were sitting there begging Jesus to perform more miracles or to usher in a new kind of political kingdom. And he's saying, you guys have no idea how to interpret the current moment, do you? You've totally misunderstood what God has been doing throughout all time and more importantly, what he's doing right now. So let me just make a general application and then a specific application. The general application is let's be good interpreters of the time we're in. Let's just take the, the simple instruction for what it is. We also are living in salvation history. Do you have an awareness of what God has called you to? Do you know what it's like to be faithful right now? What, what God is doing? And I don't th I'm not saying you have to have, have, have special insight into God's mind. I'm just saying, do you know what it means to be faithful in this current season? Do you know what it looks like to be obedient? That's the general application. But what's the more specific application in this text? Don't miss Christ. That's what he's saying here. You know how to interpret the weather. Kind of one thing leads to another. Everything has been leading to this moment where Jesus enters the scene, where the judge steps in and is about to make his, uh, live the perfect life, die the death that you and I des deserve, raise from the dead, and then to kind of be seated as the once and for all perfect judge. You guys are totally missing it, Jesus says. You have lost sight of the one who is standing right in front of you. Brothers and sisters, Imago Day Church, let's just decide. We are going to fixate on the Lord Jesus. We are not going to move to the left or to the right. We are not going to look for the new trendy thing to do or to pursue, the new program that's going to make us, you know, raise our numbers or anything like that, not to have like trendy worship or anything. Let's fixate on Christ. That's what it looks like for us to most directly apply this. Everything has been leading to the culmination of God's plan in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's not turn that into, but how can I just live my best life right now? Okay? He is the one we are to be fixating on. Okay? So they misunderstood redemptive history. They, third, they misunderstood their guilt. They misunderstood their own guilt. In verse 57... Jesus says, and why do you not judge for yourself what is right? And then he begins to tell this parable. I want you to see the rest of these, these three verses. 57 is the heading. 58 and 59 are kind of the example, okay? The point he's trying to say is, you guys don't really understand what it's like to judge right and wrong. That's, 
in some ways, why they need a judge, right? They need someone else to tell them righteousness, unrighteousness, faithfulness, unfaithfulness. He says, why do you not know how to judge for yourselves what is right? And then he tells this parable. Go to your accuser before the magistrate. Sorry, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Let's see, drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. When I read this, I'm not going to lie, friends, when I read this, my first thought is, why all of a sudden is Jesus trying to, like, get me out of my debts? Like, this is just such a strange thing to include in this series of passages, right? Here's how you can reduce your credit card debt. Judgment, judgment, historic, you know, redemptive history. We're about to see tragedies unfold. Also, here's how you can reduce your debt. That's not what he's doing here, though. What he's trying to say is, you're in debt. And he's not talking about money. He's talking about our hearts, our guilt, our sin. He's saying, you, you don't really understand how, what it is, what's right and what's wrong. You don't understand what is righteousness and unrighteousness, faithfulness and unfaithfulness. You don't understand people of Israel. You don't understand people of God, your own guilt before the judge. If we recognize our own guilt before the judge, these people would not be saying, yeah, come on and judge. They'd say, can you please hold off on judging? And that's what you would do, right? If you knew judgment was coming, maybe for something like a debt, you would try to settle with your accuser before the judgment shows up, right? You would, you would say, before I go all the way through and, and let judgment kind of carry out, let me go to my accuser and let me make right with him. This group, this crowd, the people following Jesus, they did not understand their own guilt before a righteous God. You, you imagine yourselves innocent, he's saying, but be careful because if you get caught in judgment, when you imagine yourself innocent, judgment does not hold back. There's warning here in this passage. You see where it ends, right? I tell you, you will never get out of jail until you have paid the very last penny. Like when the judge shows up, he will execute judgment perfectly. And those who are before him guilty, we will receive our just punishment. We will receive our just judgment. You will never get out. He's telling the crowds, you, you don't really understand the extent of your own guilt here. You've totally misunderstood that when I'm saying I, I am definitely coming to judge, that means you. And that means me. It means we are, are the ones who stand guilty. We don't, aren't just saying, yeah, judge all those people out there. He says, you need to recognize, you don't, know, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know how to judge rightly. They misunderstood their own guilt. And as we go into the next few verses in the beginning of chapter 13, they misunderstood their danger in that guilt. It's a weird pivot that the passage makes, isn't it? Jesus is, is teaching on judgment, and then someone get, comes up, and it, he, he kind of relays this, this series of awful events, this terrible thing that has happened. There are some people, some Galileans here, who had gone up to worship God and offer sacrifices. And apparently, while they were offering sacrifices, Pilate kills them. They're, they're in the, the act of worship, and, and Pilate kills them. And then we have another instance here that Jesus brings up. What about the Tower of Siloam? 
Everybody knows about the Tower of Siloam, right? And everybody would have been like, yeah, the Tower of Siloam, we know about that. It fell and it killed 18 people. And for both of these instances, there's this, there's this announcement of some kind of evil. You've got two kinds of evil here. You've got human evil, the part of Pilate kind of being an aggressor against these Galileans. And then you've got kind of natural or accidental evil, things just happening. It wasn't somebody being mean to another person. It was a natural disaster. It was a car accident, something like that. It was some kind of travesty that happened to the people. So he takes both of those kinds of evil And rather than just kind of pontificating and reflecting on the problem of evil, Jesus takes the opportunity to drive home his point. And that is namely this, is that there is an urgency that the crowds need to have when it comes to dealing with God's judgment. There is an immediacy, there is an urgent need. When Jesus is saying, I have come to execute judgment, he is not just saying, so think about that. He's saying, you got to do something with this, and you got to do something with it quick. So Jesus wants to make a, a handful of kind of, uh, he wants to teach a few things uh, in relation to these, both of these forms of, of evil. The first thing he wants to do is he wants to dispel the, the, the false idea that those who had suffered had more or less kind of deserved it. Do you notice in both of those passages, in both instances, he, he asked very specifically, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners? Because they suffered this way. Do you think that they suffered this way in a sense because they, they got what's coming to them? And you could say the same thing in verse 4. Uh, he says, do you think that those uh, that the tower fell on were worse offenders than everyone else who lived in Jerusalem? He says, do not think that just because these, tr- these, these terrible things happened to somebody that we can make a simple connection between them and, and say basically, maybe they had it coming. This is the worst thing we can do when we're walking alongside someone who's suffering. It's the worst thing you can do. Just, let's just all agree we're not going to be people who say, maybe this is God punishing you. Okay, that is not us to say. That is not our place. And Jesus is here acknowledging they actually weren't worse sinners. This is not a matter of them deserving it. And so let's not come alongside others and kind of accuse them of deserving it. But here, saints especially, let me, let me just encourage you, when you are suffering, do not believe the lie that you are suffering. That you, if you are in Christ, it's because you deserve it. This is something that we tend to think. It was like, maybe, maybe this is just what I had coming. Maybe this is just because I'm terrible that I've got these physical health problems or these mental health problems or these relational problems. Maybe these are just what I get for that thing I did all those years ago or even that thing I did last week. He says, no, we can't have a simplistic kind of rigid connection between you sin, boom, tragedy strikes. It just doesn't work that way. But at the same time, he does want to reinforce the general principle that death and judgment are consequences of sin. He doesn't actually try to separate entirely the reality that tragedy strikes in some way connected to the reality of sin. He wants them to see sin in these events. But it's not Pilate's sin. And it's not the sin of those who are suffering. Whose sin does he want them to see? He wants them to see their own. 
He says, I want you to look at these tragedies, these great evil instances out there. And when you see them, you don't say they must have deserved it. When you see these great instances of, of evil out there, the thing you're supposed to say is, I deserve that. I deserve that. I am the one who is guilty. But not only that, he pleads with them. The third thing he tries to teach them, he pleads with them to let these disasters be a wake-up call. There is an urgency. The time to repent is now. And friends, it is short. In both of these stories, one of the things that, that connects them, they didn't know when it was gonna happen. It was sudden, it was quick. They could have been going about their life thinking, I'll deal with that later. We're just coming off that passage. I'll settle with my accuser later. I'll deal with God later. I'll understand God's holiness and his justice and his righteousness, and I'll mess with that later on. And what Jesus is saying here is, don't wait. Do not wait. Do not delay. The danger is real. It is imminent. The proper response of, of this seeing and the proclamation of the judgment that Jesus is giving is not, uh, I'm going to take that seriously. It is repentance. It is a total turning around. That's why he says, unless you too repent. That's what he's saying. When you see these things, you need to recognize you too are a sinner. You are deserving of judgment. And it requires a total reorienting of your life. It's to turn away from rebelling against the God who created you and to align yourself with him and his ways and his kingdom and his Messiah. They misunderstood the urgency. But then Jesus tells this last, this last little parable, verses 6 through 9. He tells them the parable about this man who has a fig tree in his vineyard. And he planted that fig tree for one reason. You guys want to guess what that reason was? Figs. Uh, that is the correct answer, okay? If you've got a vineyard, it's really just got one job. Produce, okay? So he's got this vineyard, he plants this fig tree, and he wants to see figs from it. But there's a, a problem, isn't there? It didn't have fruit. Why is Jesus talking about a fig tree? Well, the fig tree was a well-known representation of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Everybody listening would have known. He's talking the, the, the fig tree, the vineyard, that's us. Well, why does the one who planted the tree want to tear it up? I mean, we're God's special people. He had given us this job. What, surely we've got stuff to do. Surely, and, and, and Jesus says that the, the vineyard, the, the fig tree, it's, it's not producing the fruit. And so let's just cut it down. Let's just cut it down. It's just wasting time and energy. That's what he says uh, in, verse, in verse 7. Uh, why should it use up the ground? This is the proclamation of judgment against those who claim to be God's people. You have claimed to be my people, and yet you have not walked in my ways. You have not produced the fruit of being my people. I'm just going to cut it down. But I also want you to see grace in this. There's a, there's a vine dresser there, isn't there? The vine dresser knows that this fig tree has not produced fruit, but he says, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and I put on manure. He says, Let's give it one more chance. Let's just give them one more chance. The image here is that the people of Israel, the people who God had set us apart for his purposes, they had had three years. They had had plenty of time to bear fruit. And Jesus, the vine dresser, comes in and he's got one more chance. 
He's got one more chance. Let's give them one more chance to see if they will bear fruit in keeping repentance. But if not, you can, you can cut it down. Friends, this is the, the patience of God on display. This is his kindness to his people on display. We'll give it one more year. We'll give it one more year. And then judgment comes. The reality is, friends, Christians, non-Christians alike, you've got time right now. God's judgment has been delayed. He has not returned to separate the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous, the faithful from the unfaithful. Now is the time to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so let me just speak to let me just speak to the unbeliever and then the believer. First, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you do not, not trust him with your life. I just want you to, to see what's happening here. That Jesus is knowing that you did not bear good fruit. None of us are. We're all guilty. We're all sinners. We did not bear good fruit. What the beginning of this passage told us is that he went and took the punishment for you. You and I deserve to be cut down. We're the, we're the non-fruit-bearing fig trees in this analogy. And Jesus was cut down for us. He was the one who took on the punishment for us. And he's saying now, instead of you having to produce all the fruit, you just need to trust me. You need to, to find your security and your, your salvation and your rescue and your redemption and your forgiveness. You find it in the one who is judged for you. You, brother, friend, you, you cannot produce fruit on your own. Jesus would use this exact analogy, actually, in John chapter 15 and say, apart from me, you can do nothing. You cannot bear fruit on your own. But the good news is that he has, he has borne the fruit for you. And the mystery, the amazing thing about the gospel is that he invites you in to have the rewards of fruit bearing without actually doing it. Isn't that incredible? Like God looks at us in our unfaithfulness and says, I'm gonna be faithful for you. And then I'm gonna invite you into that. How good and gracious is this God? And then he's patient with us. He says, we'll give him one more year to see what's going on and we're gonna invite him into this. Christian, or sorry, non-Christian, what right now is keeping you from trusting this God? He is the righteous judge. I want, to, I want to make a real quick clarification here. There's a lot of times where Christians can think about the judgment of God, the judgment of Christ, almost gleefully. I can't wait until God punishes all the sinners, that kind of thing. We do not want to do that. We do not want to delight in the, the, the damnation, the judgment of anybody. But we do not want to be unmistaken. God is a righteous judge. He is perfectly holy. He sees everything. He knows everything, and he will judge unrighteousness. And so we want to warn you. He will execute judgment, but here's the good news of the gospel. You can be rescued from it. You can be saved from that judgment. How? He dealt with it for you in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. This is, the, this is what this church is filled of people who have not said, we've got this down, we don't need judgment. We say, we are the ones who deserve judgment. And Jesus took it for us. We are the unfaithful, we are the unrighteous, and yet we've been gifted a righteousness that is not our own in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we would plead with you, trust him. Christian, 
The encouragement I would give you from this passage is to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Follow the logic through. You are not a fruit-bearing fig tree. Jesus is the one who bears fruit. We are attached to him, and he empowers us to bear fruit. You guys see the the beauty there? He's not saying, all right, here's your kind of get out of jail free card, just sit, hang tight. He actually says, keep bearing fruit. Now you actually can bear fruit. You were barren and now you're not. How? Is it because we had some kind of moral improvement? Because we figured it out? Because we tapped into some other power? No, Jesus bears his fruit through us. And we are called to walk in that uh, that fruit-bearing repentance, which means, Christians, that we, Christian, that we can continue to recognize that we are wicked, we are guilty, we are uh, uh, those who are deserving of judgment, while at the same time we celebrate what God is doing in and through us and say, look what he's doing. Look what he's doing in me. Look what he's doing around me. And then we can set our hearts to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so... Brothers and sisters, let's, let's devote ourselves to having a high esteem for the judged. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your grace and your kindness to us, especially the grace of your patience. God, we know that you are a righteous judge. You see all, you know all, and you are perfectly holy. And we just confess as a people that we have failed. We are sinful through and through. We've failed in many things that you've called us to, even the things we've set about to do, we have done in twisted ways, unfaithful ways. Lord, but you are kind and you are merciful. We thank you, Lord, that you have not only come to judge, Lord, but you've provided the, the, the rescue and the redemption that we need. So we ask, Lord, that you would set our hearts to be dedicated and devoted to the Lord Jesus. God, we ask that you would set our hearts and our church to be dedicated to the producing good fruit as we walk with you and see what you do in and through us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.